just something about sun and a little bit warmer weather helps, doesn't it? Am I in the right place? Okay, just making, just making sure. Good. There is nothing more captivating, nothing more incredible, and nothing that captures our wonder and awe than the birth of a baby. I vividly remember when both our children were born. Brittany, our firstborn, was born 39 years ago now. I remember buying the home pregnancy test and bringing it home, and it was positive. Of course, then we went to the doctor for confirmation. Yes, we were pregnant. Then came the preparations, of course. This calls for a lot of preparation. I had no idea. Getting the nursery room ready. Painting, carpeting, new curtains that had to match the quilt and the bumper pads. The crib, the mobile, the changing table, even picking out the right diaper pail and baby carrier. This was a big deal. We didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl, so we just picked red for everything. All this was in anticipation of the arrival of that special little one. Then came the Lamaze birthing classes. How many of you did Lamaze? Okay. Lamaze birthing classes. We both learned how to breathe through labor. And you know what? They never talked at all about pain. They always used the word discomfort, as if giving birth was like stretching out a pulled hamstring or something. Then the day finally arrived. I called friends and family to inform them that we were in labor. Most of them chuckled and said, oh, it's probably only Braxton Hicks contractions, false labor. Later, I told someone it was not Briggs and Stratton contractions. It was the real thing. It was fun at first until hard labor started at about 11.30 p.m., midway through an episode of Rockford Files. And it was tough trying to stay awake all night to help Judy through the contractions coaching her through the breathing exercises, which incidentally did not work. Every time we did the hee-hee-ha-ha, Judy threw up. (laughs) So about four in the morning, the nurse announced, she's ready. She wanted Judy to walk between contractions from the labor room to the delivery room. That was when they had separate rooms. Labor room and delivery room. Sounded fine to me. She was what? 30 seconds between contractions, no problem. So Judy walked, and Brittany was almost born in the hallway. That's what happened. But what an incredible moment that was. New life, a child, a human being, and we did it. Actually, God did it, and Judy did most of the work. I can say that. And as we looked in wonderment at our yet unnamed bundle of joy, unnamed because she was supposed to be a boy, We imagined promise, promise. We dreamed dreams of what her life was going to be like. A child prodigy in music and academics and athletics. A superstar. A wealthy, successful daughter who would take care of her parents in old age. The promise. The promise of a new child. Now, when Brianna was born, our second child, we were pros at this birthing process. And due to her considerate, sensitive nature, she entered the world just after midnight, knowing that I have a hard time staying up all night. The plans, 
the promise. I see smiles. A lot of you guys understand. All that we saw in our newborn babies. When our children are born, we do have dreams and plans for them. But more important than our dreams or plans for them, their Heavenly Father has dreams and plans for them. His plans include the birth, the, the growing up, the education, training, experiences both positive and negative, successes, failures, good times and tough times. These are all part of God's plan and God's purpose for every single individual life. Today we're going to look at the birth of a baby, the beginning of life. And as we do, we're going to watch as God's plan for this baby unfolds. And I want us to see what we can all learn from this story of the birth of baby Moses. If you would turn with me to Exodus 2, Exodus 2, it's on page 45 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. It also will be on the projection. Exodus 2, we're going to look at, at sections like four or five verses at a time as we go through this. So we're going to start with Exodus 2, starting with verse 1. Now a man of the house, Levi, married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. God is the author of all life. What can we learn about God in this story? Let's start with God's plan. God's plan, number one. Now, the first part of God's plan had two parts. First one was Moses' birth, his birth. And in verse 2, it says, she saw that he was a fine child, or, or how beautiful he was. Now, every mother thinks her child is beautiful, the baby, when they're first born. There, there are different opinions about that, but every mother says this is the most incredibly beautiful child ever seen. You see, children aren't like trout. If you don't like him, you can throw it back. That's not what it is. So you get the child. This is yours to keep. Now, the account doesn't say what she would have done if she thought the baby was ugly. But there's more here than just a mother's natural love for her baby. She recognized his specialness, his specialness, that he, like all babies, were created for a special purpose, knowing that God had a plan. Now, God's plan included his birth. It also included something called the mother's faith, letter B, mother's faith. In Hebrews 11.23, says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. What was the king's edict? We looked at that last week. Kill all the baby boys. That was the king's edict. That was the command. Well, Moses' parents saw in their child a specialness, a promise, a potential, and out of necessity, they had to entrust him to God, to God. Not only in hiding him for the first three months, but faith in God by putting him in this papyrus boat, floating him close by. It doesn't say why they couldn't continue hiding him at home. Maybe, maybe he was too noisy. I don't know. Could be. 
But the parents did not know. Parents did not know what was going to happen. But they believed so much that God had a plan for their little one. They believed so much that God could carry it out no matter what. So she gave this baby, her baby, over to God in every way, including physically, physically. Maxie Dunham writes, Around that little basket, the frail ark made out of straw, half lost among the reeds, is the mighty shield of God's purpose. The mighty shield of God's purpose. We can do the same for our children, our children, whether they're newborns or toddlers or teens or adults or married adults. Every child born into this world is made special by God, and he has, he has a plan. And we as parents can exercise faith in God, give our children over to God, let go of our children to God, trusting in the mighty shield of God's purpose. Moses' mother had done all she could do. Now the rest is up to God. Now, I'm not advocating child abandonment at abandonment at three months. Someone's saying, I'm just trying to get my 35-year-old out of the house now, but that, that's a different thing. Sooner or later, better sooner than later, we must entrust our children by faith to God. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. And after all the ups and downs, the good and bad, the right and wrong, even mistakes as parents that we make, we will make mistakes. The question is, can we let go and entrust our children to God? Moses' mother, in her ultimate act of commitment, settled back now to wait, to wait on God. You may be in that position today. You have a teenager, and you're having to wait on God. Maybe a wayward son or daughter, and you're having to wait on God. A grown child wandering from their potential. Maybe you have a child in the other parent's custody, and you have to wait on God, trusting God, that God has a plan, and that God, God is in control. So what happened next? What happened next? Let's go back to... Verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. What do we see here? We saw God's plan. Now we see God's providence, God's providence, number two. In this delightful suspense, we see God's care. God's really creative in how he does stuff. First of all, we see protection. God protects Moses. When I'm thinking about the Nile River and God's protection, I'm thinking alligators, okay? That's the thing I'm thinking about. That wasn't what he needed protection from. 
Moses needed protection from discovery by the wrong person, which meant certain death. If they discovered, the wrong person discovered him, they'd put him to death. But nothing was going to happen to Moses because God was protecting him. God was protecting him. There was also a preservation. He was preserved physically, nourished by his own mother. His own mother nursed him and got paid for it. Some of you that nurse children say, you know, when I nursed, I was on call 24-7, and I should have gotten paid. I should have gotten paid. It's a big job. Preserved. But more importantly, Moses was preserved spiritually. He was preserved physically, protected, preserved spiritually. We don't know the exact age at which Moses was brought back to Pharaoh's daughter. Most scholars believe that his earliest years were spent learning about the one true God. Those early formative years preserved him spiritually to identify, not with the Egyptians, but to identify with the Hebrews, God's chosen people. We live in a world that pulls our children in the wrong direction, always toward the Egypt. Proverbs 22.6 gives us this promise. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. How old is old? We do not know. But parents today take hope in that verse from God's word of preservation. God has promised to preserve. Then as part of God's providence, we find something called preparation. Let her see. Preparation. Kyle and Delish write, Moses received a thoroughly Egyptian training and was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Interesting, in the book of Acts, Stephen, in Acts 7, 20 to 22, refers back to this history, and he says, at that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son said, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Through this education, he received the training. God gave him the training required for the mission that he was going to be called to. Every part of Moses' life was preparation for his mission, his mission. I wonder if Moses ever felt like he didn't fit in. Egyptian, Hebrew, where does he fit? I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Swedish, Norwegian. I'm just kidding. No, you're, you're from two different cultures, and you say, which one do I fit in? Many here can have those kinds of feelings. Every part of our lives are part of the preparation process for you and me, for our mission, for our ministry. Our children also have that mission and ministry. They're called. God prepares them. We are all called to ministry. One of the misnomers of church is people say, so what do you do for a living? I used to say I'm a minister. I don't say that anymore. I say I'm a pastor. Because we're all ministers. 
God has called us all to the body of Christ to be ministers. We all have a role to play. Just like every part of our physical body has a role to play. And God prepares us for mission and ministry. Sometimes, and we're all given gifts, there's, there's formal education and informal education. Many say, I don't know if my life is all that important. I don't know if I have a mission. You do have a mission. You have a mission in ministry. By the way, we, in, in March, we're doing a network seminar. If you're not sure where you fit in the body of Christ thing, sign up for that. It's one of the most exciting things that I have an opportunity to teach about special gifts everybody has to operate, not only in the church, but out in the community. God's given us all a mission. When it comes to parenting, we tend to diminish a lot of things. But there was a minister who was interviewed, and he spoke of the fact that all of our social ills, all of our ills, Poverty, crime, out-of-wedlock births, drug addiction, alcoholism can be traced back to one thing, the breakdown of the family, mostly absentee fathers, absentee fathers. And I say this to the men today. The greatest mission of all is to be a loving, successful husband and father. It's not about achievement and material success. Fatherhood is the highest mission we can have. Fatherhood. There's no formal training for fatherhood, typically. And for women, the highest calling of all is to be a mother. And when those things happen properly, and God has called you to that, take that seriously and say, that's my role that's incredible. Our culture has spent a lot of time and energy demeaning fatherhood and motherhood. But that is number one. Number one. Now Moses was highly educated. So were Daniel and Paul. Many biblical heroes were highly educated. Many were not. Jesus took ordinary, uneducated fishermen. Now, we have to say they might not have had formal education, but they were great businessmen. <laughs> People knew business. You have people in the New Testament, uh, seller, Lydia, the seller of purple. We had people that may not have had formal education, but they were great business. They had training, whatever that was. But what were the credentials in preparation for ministry and mission? For them, they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. As important as education is, it's far more important than any formal educational requirements that we spend time with Jesus. We walk with Jesus. And God has a plan for you. God has a plan for your children. And he's exercising his providence for you. So there's protection, there's preservation, and there's preparation. All of this was the first part of Moses' life. Then we get to God's predicament. God's predicament, number three. Chapter 2, starting with verse 11. One day after Moses has grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? 
The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I must have done, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. He went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Moses grows up, and at this point, he has an admirable quest for justice, but he makes a grave mistake. He kills someone. He, he commits murder. Says he looked this way and that, and then he killed the man. He had no right to kill the Egyptian. Maxie Dunham writes, We applaud Moses' awareness of his people's suffering, but there is no justification for murder. To debate whether or not the murder was within the will of God is to miss the point of the narrative. What is important here is Moses' identification with his people, the Hebrews, despite the fact that he lived in the palace and had been trained as an Egyptian. This reveals Moses' sense of justice, his courage, his willingness to act and live decisively. And now we'll see how God works even through bad decisions and poor choices, which, of course, none of us ever make. What was Moses' choice? His choice was justice, and he used the murder method, which was not right. His choice was justice, but his other choice, which is elevated, was his identification with the Hebrew people. In Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26, a great verse Moses is listed as the giants of the faith, and it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith looking ahead to his reward. Moses made some wrong choices and Moses made some right choices. And whether or not the bad was in God's will or not, God's plan included taking the bad and accomplishing his will anyway. Taking the bad and accomplishing his plan anyway. Only God can do that. What's God's response? Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Only God can take our bad, our mistakes, the negatives, and turn it around for good. Our poor choices, our mistakes, only God can do that. As we look back on our life, we can look at all kinds of things maybe we did wrong. Maybe marrying it of an unbeliever, a failed marriage, sexual infidelity, a, a homosexual lifestyle, drugs or alcohol abuse, prison time, swindling somebody for selfish gain. Uh, gain. Some, maybe you've done something you can never forgive yourself for. We all, all of us, have placed God in a predicament by virtue of our mistakes or our sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's a predicament. That's a predicament we find ourselves in. 
And all of these righteous-looking people around you are in the same predicament. Just saying. We're all in the same boat. Just like Moses, who actually committed murder. It's God who places and provides a way out. Moses escapes to the wilderness. He finds community and family. They take him in. They even give him a wife. But let's finish our chapter. In our predicament, we find the God of promise. This is promise. Verse 23 says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. What's God's promise here? What can we take away as a promise for us as well? The promise was for Moses. It was for the Hebrew people, and it's for us too. The first one is God hears. God hears. God hears your predicament. You may be in so much pain that all you can do is groan. You can't tell anyone. You can't talk to anyone. You may not be able to even express it in words. God hears our groaning heart. He sees. He sees our tears. F.B. Myers says tears have a voice and God interprets it. Tears have a voice and God interprets it. God saw he heard. Also, God remembers. God remembers. It says God remembers his covenant with Abraham. God who is faithful despite unfaithfulness. And God remembers every promise he's made to you. To you. And this remembrance is more than just a mental act of I remember. It includes the performance of his promises. God remembers his plan for you for your children. He remembers it. And God takes the sin, the mistakes, and the poor choices in our lives. It's like the master weaver who weaves the mistakes into the design of the rug and makes it something beautiful. Only God can do that. God remembers your potential, his plans, all that you've been through. There's a psalm, Psalm 34. You can look at it sometime. Talks about the fact that God stores our tears in a bottle. He stores our tears in a bottle. So he can remember them. He can remember them. So God remembers. And then God sees. God sees. Let her see. The Hebrew word for looked upon has a deeper sense of of knowing. To see in such a way as to know. And it's synonymous with experiencing something, which means God experiences our challenges, our feelings, as we do. He experiences them. He feels them. He sees. He feels. And God knows. God knows. Says that he took notice of them. He acknowledged them. This is a, a, an expression of personal relationship. And if you are here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with God and you want one, you can have one. We confess our sins. We repent for our sins. Ask Christ to come into our lives. And he can be the Lord of our life. That's that expression of personal relationship. So when it says God knows, 
He knows. He takes knowledge of them. Well, wherever you are today, God has a plan for you. God has a plan for your children. God has taken care of you, protected, and preserved you. In our poor choices and sin, God sent Jesus to pay for our sins so that we could have his promises. And in the middle of all this, God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that we can see who you are and what you do in the life of this one baby that was born, Moses. And I pray that we'll be able to take courage in the fact that, that we are in the same type of relationship where you love us unconditionally. And I pray, Lord Jesus, no matter what each person is going through, whether it's a parent crying out for their child, no matter what age or where they are, or whether they are that child going through the predicaments. I just pray, God, that you would speak to us knowing that you feel what we feel and you know. In Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?